You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. We've got reason to celebrate today because we have surpassed 10 Studying Pixels Plus members. I think we're at 11 or 12 right now. And I'm super happy about that. Thank you all so very much out there. It's very exciting. And I, I know that we have a, um, a very fun reason for that boost. But uh, regardless, it's still great to see that people are getting access to that library of our Plus episodes. Um, there'll be many more to come. So uh, if you haven't yet signed up, now's the time. Now is the time because indeed we are still doing the PlayStation 5 giveaway that we announced last week. It's still running. We are giving away a PlayStation 5 disc edition with one additional DualSense controller. The entire package is worth 560 US dollars. And we are giving it away to one random Studying Pixels Plus member. We're going to announce the winner, or not announce, we're going to announce it afterwards in the next episode then, but we're going to select the winner on December 4th, 2021. So that will be next week. So if you want to participate and have a chance to win the PlayStation 5 with the additional DualSense controller, then you should definitely consider joining Studying Pixels Plus now. You can find all the information on studyingpixels.com slash PS5 as well. And, well, I mean, just one thing that I want to say briefly. I'm, I'm super happy that we saw an increase in Studying Pixels Plus members. It was quite obvious, and it's also obvious that some of you joined and are potentially going to leave uh, in case you do not win the PlayStation 5, right, or when the giveaway is over. We understand that. But, of course, we also want to draw attention to the fact that this is really an independent podcast we do not have any advertisements. We don't run any advertisements out of principle. And we just have to finance this project ourselves. In fact, and this might be something that we need to mention because it's not quite obvious, this PlayStation 5 giveaway is not something that is like organized in cooperation with Sony or something that they gave us a PlayStation 5. But instead, we as the Studying Pixels team, we threw our money together to purchase that thing with the firm intent that we are going to make someone's Christmas this year. So it's basically all on us, and that's why we are obviously very grateful and very happy for every Studying Pixels Plus member that we have, because we need that support. Yeah, that's the honest truth. And honestly, I mean, um, for those of you, as, as Stefan mentioned, um, you know, we're not, uh, we're maybe not naive to think that everyone will stick around for uh, forever and in perpetuity. However, I will say this. Um, between now and December 4th, when we're going to, um, pick the winner, um, please do take a listen to the couple of episodes that we have up in our plus program, um, and listen to our back catalog as well. And if you like what we're doing, um, reach out to us and feel free to continue to listen. We've got a lot of great stuff in store for us. Yes, we're going to announce the topic for the next PlayStation, excuse me. The next PlayStation Plus. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to announce the PlayStation Plus lineup for, <laughs> for next month. <laughs> of course, I'm of course talking about the Studying Pixels Plus lineup, uh, which is the next episode that we're going to do. Uh, I think next week, next week we can announce the next subject. Um, it's going to be an interesting one. I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope so are you. 
Our main story today is about games in the box, specifically about how games got into a box. So like, you know, a physical, proper physical box and how they made their way back out. In order to go into this, we are now joined by Claudius Kluver. He is a good colleague of mine, a research fellow at the Institute of Media Studies at Philips University Marburg. He's also a member at Games Co-op, as well as the AG Games of the German Society for Media Studies, and he's currently working on his PhD project with the working title, The History of Games as Wares. Hi, Claudius. Hi, Stefan. You're engaging with a subject for your PhD, which is quite a commitment. You're engaging with this for a couple of years, for several years. What brought this specific topic on games in a box or games as a ware? Well, um, I was like looking at all sorts of different areas, what I could do. I was interested in analog games. I was um, interested in the body and embodiment in games, stuff like and and not um, like representation of bodies in games, but what what does the body do while we're gaming, like pressing buttons and stuff like that. So that was uh, generally the um, the area, and maybe you you can also see how that ties in together. Like like analog games are very physical. You you're interacting with dice and with with things. And I was researching around that topic and, and searching for something that that would be worthwhile. And it's not only a long commitment, but um, a PhD is, thesis is also, in a way, very short. You need something that you can, like, press in maybe 300 pages. So I was um, searching for something that had had clear boundaries. And at some point, I realized that there there was a book that I wanted to cite. This book didn't exist, so I decided to write it myself. Ah, oh, that's a beautiful <laughs> way to start off a PhD. It's like, I'm going to write that book. Yeah, yeah. And now you're writing a book about how games evolve from being, well, not in a box to being basically boxed in in a form of a wear to then again leaving the domain of the box and yes maybe we could go through these steps briefly but because my first thought was that when i was a child i used to play a lot of you know hide and seek for example or soccer somewhere in the village near the village on a field and i realized if we not only focus on video games but games in general and there are a lot of games that actually do not come in a box yeah and i mean it's something like like a tag or, or children's games um you couldn't possibly really box them in any way but even games that we are very used to today to get like in a box we we're going to a game store and we carry a box home and it may be an analog game like settlers of Catan or, or monopoly or something or maybe a, even a digital game where we're very used to buying computer games in a box and those like like these board games they haven't always been in, in boxes in the sense that we're thinking about it today. Let's get back to the children's games. They primarily exist as, as rules. And these rules are traditionally transmitted. Like someone tells someone else the, the rules, or we observe someone playing the game, we join in, something like that. Or maybe we buy a book with the rules. And... This was also for a long time the case with, with board games or card games. Like you had the material and you would buy these materials. And most of the time they wouldn't come 
in boxes in past times because like what we have today, like cardboard boxes, that's a relatively new invention. That's, that's industry at work. Maybe you had like um, wooden boxes. Like which, a chessboard. Yes, like a chessboard. But they're not, wooden boxes are not produced to uh, look good in a store's shelf, but they are sturdy. They are there to last the, the test of time. They're more, more like furniture, basically. So they have been boxes, but they are different boxes, basically. And what the games in uh, older times had in common is that the rules weren't in the box. The rules were a different story altogether. So you would have a chess set, you would have a deck of cards, other way around, you would have a book with chess tactics, with chess openings, and you would go out and buy a chess set to use the book. Or you would know someone who knew like poker and they wanted to teach you, so you go, went out and bought cards. So the material and the rules were transmitted or traded separately. And that also kind of makes them flexible, right? Yes. Because if I think about chess is something that I think my parents explained to me. And then many years later, a friend explained like a different kind of rule set to me or like additional rules that you can use that more professional players use. I still suck at chess, by the way. But uh, the thing is that the rules are fairly flexible because they're being transmitted from maybe generation to generation, but at least from person to person. Yeah, and you mentioned something interesting also. These traditional games, these older games, um, those are still traded that way today, like chess. Nobody learns chess just from a book, or very, very few people learn chess just from a book. Yeah, they're flexible, but that's modern thinking at work. There's kind of flexible, but kind of not, because they're traditional. And if you're in a traditional society, tradition is very important, and, and you try to not alter the rules as you're taught, you try, you try to repeat the rules that you're taught. Chess also has like a really long-standing, consistent rule set. Yes. Much like shogi and other older, older forms that preceded it. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and, and you mention other forms of chess. When you look around the world, you fi find all kinds of different variants of, of uh, chess pieces. But those are very stable. And, and the form we know today are, is like from the, I think, the 16th century, when it, when it was written, written down. If we move a little bit closer towards video games, I think one way in which games can also be boxed in is with arcades. You know, in arcade systems, in arcade machines, but also in public spaces. So this also feels very distinct to me from what we know later as games you could, you know, purchase in a box of Amazon or get at a video rental store. But it's a public space where you would go. Would you qualify arcade machines as also games in a box already? Well, they're um, kind, of a, kind of a special case as like computer games are special case. Anyway, and all of that because computer games enforce the rules by themselves. So you, you don't really need a rule book per se. Like older games had like instruction manuals with them. So they, they looked basically like a board game. You open it up, you have all the play materials and you have the rule book. And of course, they are later. Like I said, they are old games, they are new games. Like the, the cutoff is basically in the 1860s. Anything after that, you have tend to have like the rules within a cardboard box, and the cardboard box is 
also like designed in a pretty way to look good in a store's shelf so people would buy it. So it's commodified. And it also looks like a commodity. It looks like cornflakes. It's, it's like a box in a shelf. Why did this happen around the 1860s, you say? So I think my mind goes to, you know, industrialization, urbanization, these dynamics. Is that the reason? Is that what you're alluding to? Um, yeah, that's a big part of the reason. But also what I mentioned, it's, um, it's also a little bit more than that kind of. Because um, the first thing that happens with that, and you have these traditional games, which then get basically boxed in. You have like a game of goose is a, a very famous example for that. Um, or like Snakes and Ladders in the US, or Ludo, Mensch ärger dich nicht in Germany. Ah, yeah, now it rings a bell. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and Ludo and Mensch ärger dich nicht, um, they are older, traditional, based on Pachisi, which is from India. I see. So you take all these traditional games from all over the world, you print a rule book, you put it in a box, you sell it. That's not really what we see when we go in a toy store right now. Right now, um, we're used to every month there are new games and we can go and we, we never get bored. There are always new games and they don't, they aren't like the old traditional games with a new design or, or just some minor variation. They're new design games by game designers. So basically, if you distinguish between old and new games, then your distinction is, if I understand it correctly, to say that old games are basically traditional games that are um, commodified in the sense that they are added a rule book, they're added maybe a cover, they're put into a box, they're literally boxed in, whereas new games is the vast array of video, excuse me, not only video games, but all kinds of games that are being produced and put out there that are not like, don't have this kind of long-standing tradition. Yes, yes, yes. And they... Also, you get figures like uh, game authors or game designers. Like, like you get a name on the box who made it. We don't know who thought of chess the first, and and it doesn't matter. Yeah, chess directed by David Cage or something like that. Yeah, and that's also a thing. Like um, games, all of the sudden become like other forms of like media the middle class likes. They come like uh, they become like novels or like DVD mov movies on DVDs. Uh, if you uh, today you can have like this a uh, very prestigious bourgeois bookshelf and like one shelf is just novels one shelf is movies and the shelf below it is video games the shelf below it is um board games and it looks more or less all the same it looks the same yeah but the interesting thing is also because you mentioned the aesthetics that games have in a bookshelf or in any kind of shelf at home and i think that also um, brings an affordance with it, the requirement coming up with more visual design elements to conceptualize them differently <clears throat> rather than, you know, there's no box of, you know, hide and seek or chess or card games, like traditional uh, card sets. They look pretty boring and all the same. Yeah, and um, there are also practical um, reasons for that, like especially with card games. They all look the same so you can easily recognize them. Otherwise, if you had like artists who would like go crazy with the design, the person who would know the deck better would be an advantage. And you mentioned that we have like aesthetics of it. We have always new designs and stuff like that. That's also part of this uh, commodification drive. But um, that's not only industry of it work. The industry needs something like that. 
because if you just sell everybody who wants a chess set... Yeah, the market is saturated at a certain point. The market is saturated, and then basically what your interest is as a um, board game publisher is you want to sell chess too, yeah. the chessening. But that doesn't make any sense with traditional games. Like I wanted to make clear with chess too, like chess too or poker too, nobody wants it. You need a reason to give people new games, new games, new games, and new games again. And so the industry looks, basically looks for that, I think mostly unconsciously, but it would be really useful at that point, like 1840s, 1850s for the industry to have like a reason to sell new games to people every month. So from a systems theoretical perspective, this would be the economic system reproducing itself. Yes. Yeah, yeah, basically. And there's also a big technological drive because yes. computers are invented and beyond their usefulness in the case of military and the science of labor and so on, mm -hmm. uh, they turn out to be incredible machines to make games. Yes. The fact is that computer games on their own came into existence, but in a world where modern games, like I described them, were designed, mass-produced, and um, educational, thought of as educational at least, they already exist and people are already used to them. So, um, and, and when computer games get, get uh, economized, uh, like commodified, that's basically the, the tradition they connect to. They, they have their own industry, but that's, that's basically where the, the tracks go together, basically. And a whole industry of video game development emerges if we put arcade machines aside very much centered around uh, selling people video games in boxes because then it's kind of the default mode that you go to a store and you pick up a video game that has pretty elaborate uh, visual design i'm talking of the box itself probably more so than the actual game right because mm -hmm. you needed to you need to stir up people's imagination the atari was not able to deliver a graphical quality that would really inspire people so instead the box art would be very significant and yes the, the yes. rules be, the rules become stagnant because they are written in a technological code in an operationalizable code that is then not all not changeable anymore yeah, and um, yeah, cases are very important in that whole system because a lot of times the, the games that come out on the home systems are also games that are available in the arcades in better graphics. So, so you you have like the images from the box art in your head, but you also have the images from the arcade in your head. Maybe you have seen a commercial of the game. So there's all this additional imagery that you take to the game that makes the game more interesting. And uh, also in this early times, um, basically the, the computer games industry is a little bit of um, looking for like a place. Like the early video games consoles, they're basically advertised as, as technology for the home. So basically this is a VCR. This is like like today are um, maybe smart speakers or something. This, this is new. This is uh, technological. This is high tech. You can... And also the, the, the thought of education. You, you, can, you can educate your children for the new technological age or something like that. But it's um, an update for your computer, for your, it's an update for your uh, television set, basically. Basically a home appliance. Yes, a home appliance, yes. And 
you can buy additional games for it that yeah. come in a box. And the games, they also become, that's what I find most striking, commodified. That means people own these games. It might sound trivial at first, but when I think about it, it strikes me that I would never say I own Hide and Seek uh-huh. uh, or something of that sort. It feels to me like when the when games and video games become something for the home that is in people's homes, something that they purchase and they bring it home, mm-hmm. that also brings them in a very in a possessive relationship to that video game text. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. And, and you see it in, in language. You buy Monopoly, but you buy a chess set. Yeah. You buy, I don't know, Wizard, but you buy a deck of cards. But also, on the other hand, like if you look at the law, it isn't really true, at least for, for like uh, PC games um, since the, at least since the 90s, because what you do is you buy a license to use the game. So this is basically the modern time of digital distribution where we do not have this sense of possession. Well, we might have the sense of possession, but it's factually inaccurate. And uh, we need to think of it more as licenses or as often as thrown around games as a service. We often subscribe to games, like subscriptions are also pretty common these days. Well, I do not own Fortnite mm-hmm. or I don't know what else there is. <laughs> All kinds of other free-to-play games, Warframe or whatever exists, right? Yeah. I don't own these games, but I have a subscription. And in that sense, I can participate in a community that persistently evolves, which again changes the dynamic profoundly, I feel like. Sure, sure. It it puts the perspective completely off of the angle of saying, like, I am the one who owns this game. Yeah, and and it's um, kind of a little bit reminiscent of the the traditional times, right? Because it feels a little bit more like tag again or like a children's game. But... And this, at the same time, it gives like the um, the publisher of uh, Fortnite way more power and way more control about the people, and and even more control than they had when we bought the games in, in uh, boxes. If you technically imagine, you buy, let's say, a Fortnite cartridge for yes. the SNES. Imagine they get a demake or something of the sort. Then this would be. A, a material, physical object that I can use and I can do with it whatever I like, including selling it on. Like you can't sell Fortnite on, mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware at least. Or most digital games, indeed, you cannot sell on. So it puts you out of the position of being of being an owner. And as you said, Epic Games, the company that owns Fortnite, they have a profound control as in they can change and alter it over time. A control that no one has over games such as Hide and Seek. Yes, and it's it's uh, totally weird because in all of these steps you have like moves of more control and moves of more liberation. Like we said, with the advent of the modern game, you have a figure like um, game designer. At, at the f- for the first time in history, you had um, the idea that you could sit down and invent a new game and people would play it. At the same time, of course, there's a whole giant industry selling people educational games and other games get banned from um, from proper society like like casino games gambling and stuff like that or everything that's a little bit violent get gets uh, thrown out of the the uh, schoolyard 
then you go on today, you have this, okay, we, we are more open, the games are, the computer games now are free to play, you can just download it and start to play, you don't need to buy it up front. Um, but also that way, the publishers get way more control. And all of a sudden, this this industrial game, this the, the power of the publisher gets something the gamers um, start to defend as something like like the the proper ideal, the platonic ideal of a computer game today is the full price game, like as opposed to paid upgrades, in-game purchases, DLCs or something. Now now we're talking about we we're all um, becoming proper like bourgeois uh, novel readers. No 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 the the work. Like the complete work, that's the unit we need to defend against all these in-game purchases now. We see this especially when publishers or developers produce a, let's say, remaster or remake of former works. And when they make, let's say, minor changes to these works that they see might be in their interest. And people get upset because they have a certain attachment to these original works. But do you see a problem with this idea? Because from what you said, it sounds to me like you you see it as a problem that publishers and developers have this sort of control, this sort of influence. Yeah, especially because um, games are really culturally important and socially important. Like people meet each other online. Um, they are in Animal, Animal Crossing New Horizons. Um, during the pandemic, people had funeral services that they uh, couldn't do physically because of um, pandemic restrictions. Um, so, so that's basically a central block of uh, culture done in video games. At the same time, while big multinational corporations have all of the control over these, these spaces, these digital spaces, so there's at least a tension there. Because I think people need some some level of uh, control and some level of right to their uh, cultural and social spaces and to their cultural and social expressions, so so that they can keep doing that. And and that's that's always precarious right now. So it, we see Animal Crossing is in the ownership of Nintendo. We know that games such as World of Warcraft in, are in the ownership of. Activision Blizzard, a highly contested publisher these days as well. Uh, but what do we do? You, you, I think you rightfully said that these are important cultural spaces in which stories happen, experiences happen, friendships and social communities happen. But naturally, they are in the hand. Well, I'm saying nat I'm saying naturally, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna make that point. I'm gonna stick with it. <laughs> naturally, they are in the hand of corporations because they are the ones who made it. Now, where's the problem in that? Where's the problem in that? Okay, I, I thought you were going to ask what's what's the solution, but I'm I'm glad to pin to put a pin in that. What's the problem in that? Well, first of all, like I said, it's a little bit problematic if you have limited control over the spaces that you need to be connected to other people to express yourself. I think that should be a fundamental right to have a participation in culture and. To have a participation in in um, in society, and and nobody to be able to really take that away from you. Of course, the the word natural um, is something uh, you just said to provoke me. But 
I would also um, doubt the thing that you said that these corporation made that game because yeah, the text of the law basically or, or the way that production of games functions that's true or at least that's the way that the system thinks it works but look at what happened in shooter games since since the late 90s or, or since doom actually if you look at um, the progression of popular shooter games let's say we have fortnite which came became popular as a battle royale game Uh, Battle Royale was popularized by PUBG. PUBG is a mod, something someone did as a hobby project of Armed Assault. Armed Assault is a tactic shooter. Tactic shooters uh, um, basically tra trace their lineage more or less back to Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike is a mod of Half-Life, something some people did as a hobby project on top of Half-Life. Half-Life is a story-heavy game. There it gets a little bit muddy. I'm, I'm going to say something wrong, but that shooters can tell stories is maybe something that guts its impulses from some Doom mods. At every step of, the, of this uh, evolution, you get people sitting down as a hobby project, as a passion project, as their expression, as their uh, participation in culture, They just wanted to do something and they went ahead and did it. And then some big corporation did it and said, okay, that, that already works. Yeah. We don't have to do any um, research and development. We're just gonna make a nicer, prettier version of, of what already people did. So basically the, the, the people are doing the same shit they did like 400 years ago and like playing around They are playing with play. They are playing their games with games and uh, improving them, participating in culture and making their own traditions. And then the corporations come and uh, stake their claims and um, put a price tag on everything. So we got this, the corporations appropriating, let's say, uh, cultural knowledge or cultural history or cultural forms of play. Yes. Now I'm going to ask the question, what is the solution to that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and that's the point where, where every respectable academic or researcher should like uh, stop talking uh, and, and excuse himself. But I think definitely that gaming culture and play culture needs some new way of resistance, some new lines of defending what's basically already theirs. And I don't think it's a bad thing that we now have, and not only from the gamers, also from game studies people and from journalists, that we have this ideal image of like the full price boxed game as a work of art. That's a good thing we should like keep that we could uh, we should try to pre preserve that also as an, as an idea but i think that also that there's there lies um liberty in these online games uh freedom in these online games uh, freedoms of expression and, and things like that that um people need to get their hands on or keep their hands on and i think we need some new ways 
and also some new fresh ideas on how people can participate in online culture and also then have control over their own participation and politically uh, influence that and, and have a say in the design of those things. That was Claudius Kluver, Game Studies Scholar and Research Fellow at the Institute of Media Studies at Philips University in Marburg. Thank you so very much again. And now we're going to move ahead and do some side questing. As you know, in our side quests, we scavenge the internet for interesting stories and we bring our own gaming impressions to the table. We've got four stories to tell today. And the first one is actually an update to last week's Activision Blizzard catastrophe. Number one. Yes, catastrophe is right. And this is a brief update. So for those of you who um, haven't heard about what's going on over at Activision Blizzard, feel free to uh, check out our last episode and also just log on to the internet for about two minutes. Um, you'll definitely find some commentary on the heinous stuff going on over at Activision. Um, but just a quick recap. Um to no one's surprise, Bobby Kotick, the CEO of Activision Blizzard, um, is not a particularly nice man um, and has a lot of uh, issues with, um, I mean, baseline treating employees well, but more so um, seemingly covering up sexual misconduct allegations, having his own violent outbursts that needed to be addressed. Um, and last week, we kind of left off with this... Um, chilling uh, message from uh, Activision Blizzard, which was that they have confidence in Kodak and that they believe that he can turn things around. Um, but the rest of the games industry does not have so much uh, confidence in that. And we did go over a few responses to what's happening over at Activision Blizzard. And Big Papa Nintendo has stepped into the ring and uh, they've given their response as well. So this is from an article on Fanbyte um, by Imran Khan. Um, so there was a, a communication from Nintendo um, that I believe was leaked, but it was confirmed to be true. Um, and this was a statement from Doug Bowser where he said, quote, Along with all of you, I've been following the latest developments with Activision Blizzard and the ongoing reports of sexual harassment and toxicity at the company. I find these accounts distressing and disturbing. They run counter to my values as well as Nintendo's beliefs, values, and policies. It seems maybe a minor gesture, but like we said last week, it means a lot to the people in the industry and to people who follow it that big names like Nintendo are taking stances like these. I think so too. I think it also has an impact on, I don't know what the status of the stock market is in that sense, but I do think if you see people like, or companies like PlayStation, uh, Microsoft, Xbox, and Nintendo condemn, openly condemn Activision Blizzard and their CEO, then this must have an economic impact where you think, okay, these corporations, and I'm talking about the cooperation between these corporations are not as stable and reliable as they might at first glance seem. So this surely has an impact, I would guess. And it's a good a good thing to do. Yes, I think uh, a pretty measurable impact. Um, we mentioned last week also that um, internally at Activision, they are um, there's a lot of protest. I think it's gone up to around 
really between 15 and 20% of their workforce have um, begun petitioning uh, the company and saying that they have little to no trust or confidence in Bobby Kotick. Um, and we're seeing that kind of echo throughout the rest of the games industry. And just to kind of continue with how um, Doug Bowser in particular responded to this, speaking on behalf of Nintendo, um, he did say that they are uh, evaluating actions um, to take with Activision in terms of any partnerships they may have, assessing what they may do next. And he goes on to say, quote, every company in the industry must create an environment where everyone is respected and treated as equals and where all understand the consequences of not doing so. So good on you, Nintendo. Good on you, Doug Bowser. We don't often have nice things to say about bigwig CEOs, but this is the right thing to be saying at this time. I would say. Yeah, we're going to obviously be profoundly critical of all of these three companies next week again. <laughs> but for this <laughs> week, right. I think it's just important <laughs> to say that it is it is the only right response to give. Yes. And I think, Stefan, to your point, um, there does seem to be some real reaction um, in the stock market amongst the shareholders, as we mentioned last time. Um, where the message has seemed to have changed a little bit around Bobby Kotick. So like we mentioned last week, um, the board seemed to be behind him at Activision Blizzard. They, it's kind of been described as an old boys club, kind of like a frat house where people fall on the sword for each other. Um, and that seems to have kind of turned a little bit. So uh, Bobby Kotick was quoted as saying he will consider stepping down if he can't quickly resolve the issues at Activision Blizzard. And uh, to that, I just want to say, ha, ha, and of course, ha. (laughs) (laughs) I I would think maybe a little too too late, Mr. Kotick, but um, that to me, looking at kind of the corporate speak behind it, could be interpreted as a transition into slowly leaving if the trend of poor stock market trends for Activision continue, they may have no choice but to see him off. But it is a very strategic form of communicating it because when he says, I will consider mm. leaving, then that, that would also include that if he then decides, if things stay as messed up as they are, which hopefully won't be the case, that then he might say, okay, I've thoroughly considered it and I have come to the conclusion that there's still work for me to be done here so I'm not going to leave so this is still an an option it's a very strategic way of communicating that yes it's a real uh situation of hedging one's bets I think to see how the the tide turns so we'll definitely keep you updated on this story as things progress I don't think this is going anywhere anytime soon and um I'm just glad that like we said, these bigger companies have taken the right position and are speaking out against this kind of behavior. It might be that I just watched too many episodes of Kitchen Nightmares recently. But <laughs> honestly, I just can't help this this funny idea of Gordon Ramsay stopping by at Activision Blizzard, you know? <laughs> and being like, <laughs> being like, what is this? And, it's, uh, it's Warcraft not- 3, it's raw! <laughs> it's not finished! I'm not a developer and I can tell you that (laughs) I would gladly watch a a million episodes of Kitchen Nightmares the game developing version yeah and then he goes into like what is the equivalent of the walk-in fridge 
And he's like, oh, what's that smell? <laughs> How old is that? <laughs> yeah, that's our pay disparities between male and female employees. <laughs> when has this been cooked? It's old. <laughs> that's exactly how i imagine it to go and he speaks he sits Uh. down with with bobby kotick afterwards you know he sits down at the end of the first day of him being there and he sits there and he's like bobby i can't help you if you're not willing to change (laughs) you know my favorite my favorite uh kitchen nightmares trope that actually i think uh works really well with bobby kotick is um my favorite moment in any episode is when he says you're in denial and the response is, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> this oh, is, man. Oh, this would be so great. I definitely watched that. Oh, yeah. Man. <laughs> well, hey, uh, Mr. Ramsey, if you're listening, as I'm sure you are, uh, give we us a call. We need your help. We'll, we'll, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the games industry needs your help. And number two, we've actually got a brief shout out. It's a long read. It's an article that we can't go into in great detail here, but feel free to give it a listen out there. And that article is The History of the Strategy Game by Fraser Brown, published on PCGamer.com. You can find the link in the show notes if you have some time to read through the entire history of the strategy game, which also, by the way, covers such highlights like, you know, Warcraft 3 and so on and so forth. It it pretty much spans the time from early tabletop games up until, I think, like XCOM and, and, you know, like fairly recent uh, strategy game releases. So it's definitely an interesting overview for all of you strategy fans out there. Are you a fan of the strategy game genre? In some cases. I wouldn't consider Hmm. myself to be a fan of the genre, but I also at the same time cannot stop playing Civilization. Ah, yes. Okay. So... Mm, it always eats into my time like no tomorrow but the civilization especially such things like the local multiplayer that is just glorious fun it's it's definitely one of those uh one of those categories of games that i have immense respect for but not a whole lot of interest in so it's it's always fun to read up on something to try to get a window into somebody's uh deep interest into a series or a uh, genre like that yeah, maybe we could do a Civ episode one day. I'd really like that. Oh, yeah. In the meantime, we can move ahead to number three, Dan. You've brought an interesting video game along. Yeah, so <clears throat> I am a, uh, as much as I am a Kingdom Hearts nut, I also really love Pokemon. Um, have since I was a kid. And as I've gotten older and more and more video games have come out, I haven't always played the most recent iterations of, of Pokemon. Um but I did lose a lot of time to Pokemon Sword and Shield in 2019 when those were released. And I have such fond memories of that that I decided to pick up um, the new ones, uh, which are, I'm, I need to get this right, it's Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. Just for me as someone who has played Pokemon Sword, but since then I've kind of yeah. fell off of things a little bit and haven't followed the reporting on a Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. These are remakes, right? They are, yeah. And my interest in them actually was that um, Diamond and Pearl, the original Nintendo DS games, were games that kind of passed me by. I think I was at the time in my life where I kind of stopped playing Pokemon and uh, never really, never really got into them. Um, and so I decided that now is as good a time as ever with the kind of uh, 
you know, they, they did this remake, they've refreshed every, everything. And, um, I'll say this, I'm still not hooked, uh, into it. Game hasn't kind of grabbed me like sword and shield did, or like the original Pokemon games did. Um, but I'm, I'm sticking with it. I want to give it its time because I know that these two games are beloved by Pokemon fans, which is, I think why they've gotten this re-release or this remake. Um, but I think that I feel the formula a lot in it. Um, and in Sword and Shield, people say that that game is kind of a return to form, but I felt it was really energetic and I really loved the characters and the world um, of uh, the Galar region. And Diamond and Pearl, maybe I just, I, I haven't gotten through too much of it yet, but I, I just don't feel that connection that I did with the uh, the other games. So I'm going to keep trying it, but you know, it's, it's hard to jazz up Pokemon. Um, it's yeah. very similar. And if you don't have that kind of uh, secondary hook, like sword and shield do with the kind of England type region or the, the big um, Dynamax battles, uh, it just kind of feels like any other Pokemon game, but I know that they're beloved, so I'm not saying it's bad. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. As far as I'm aware, they are quite beloved and they are also relatively well remastered as far as I'm aware. Like its age is not showing too strongly in comparison to Pokemon Sword and Shield, right? No, it's... I think they uh, they made a smart decision to stylize it. So it's not like Sword and Shield where your character is a fully... Well, the characters are fully three-dimensional, but in Sword and Shield, they're... You know, they, they they look like video game character models. In um Diamond in the Diamond and Pearl remakes, you're basically playing an upscaled version of the DS game. So your character is a little chibi sprite walking around this world. It feels more like Go Pikachu and Let's Go Eevee uh a little bit. And I think that um it's it's definitely got a lot more work into it than say Fatal Frame Maiden of Blackwater had, yeah. In terms of a remaster, <laughs> that's not a not a challenge, not but a yes. high bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I think uh, I'm going to stick with it. Um. And uh, I think what this is getting me more excited for, oddly enough, is the game that will be coming out in uh, February, the open world. Pokemon game uh, Arceus, which seems to be taking some cues from Diamond and Pearl's universe a little bit. So uh, maybe this is more of a primer for that to whet the appetite of people who wanted a more classic Pokemon game. I can play a Pokemon game perfectly fine every 10 years, roughly, because they are yeah. so similar. They always follow the same formula. And I always enjoy the Pokemon games. I have never played a Pokemon game after which I thought, wow, that was really terrible. But it also it's a kind of very specific thing that I need to get that, that I need to be in the in the headspace for. And I'm I think after completing Pokemon Shield a couple of like well, when did that came out? Like a year ago or one and a half years ago or something? Two years, yeah. Two uh, years. Wow. November twenty nineteen. Okay. I've I've completed that pretty much briefly after it was released and I'm going to play it again, I decided, but then in Japanese. Because as far as I'm aware, Pokemon is relatively good for, you know, some Japanese immersion. Yes, I would say so. It's, uh, well, because, I mean, <clears throat> there's no getting around it. It's a it's a child's game. <laughs> it's meant for children. 
and that's fine. Um, plenty of children's games are very fun for everybody, but yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think, um, every, every 10 years or so, so they'll innovate in some way and it's enough to draw you back. Um, I'll say too, though, um, that one of the things that turns me away is there are so many Pokemon now, um, yeah. that the gotta catch them all thing is a little, uh, intimidating <laughs> and so it's too many it, for know. me actually and I, I remember there was the controversy when a sword and shield came out there was a controversy that not all the pokemon are in there like they weeded some out and for me i started playing i i actually didn't even notice to begin with and i still struggled because i caught so many new pokemon that at a certain point i was i was not able to build a relationship with any of them specifically. I just had my team set and then it took a long time before I would replace a Pokemon. And if I catch a new one, I just, you know, throw it in the da database and that's it, you know? Well, I think there's a there's a joke going around on Twitter that um, people who are fans of Diamond and Pearl, they said, oh, I can't wait to try out uh, brand new teams and go back to the game. And then everybody just responds with, there's, there's one set team that is agreed upon to be the best in the game. And so, you know, as an adult, when you're playing Pokemon, you're maximizing your time. So you say, okay, I need these six and then I'll be good to go. So it yeah. takes the fun <laughs> out of exploring a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Ideally playing without a guide probably is a good idea. Yeah. Number four, I actually got also got a Nintendo game that I brought along and it's also kind of a re-release or remake of a Nintendo game. And that is Layton's Mystery Journey. Catriel and the Millionaire's Conspiracy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what a title. Very nice. Yeah. I love that game. It's really cool. It's part of Apple Arcade. I have an Apple Arcade subscription, and I think it's like $5 a month. Um, and it gives you access to uh, dozens of games on the App Store and removes everything like advertisements and microtransactions and so on. They're also specifically exclusively developed titles for Apple Arcade, but this is, I don't think, one of them. Um, it's instead a spin-off of the Professor Layton series. It's basically the series of the mystery puzzle adventures. And the cool thing about it is that you just mentioned in the case of Pokemon, uh, Sword and Shield, that it has a distinctly British flair to it. And oh, yes. Well, Professor Layton obviously goes all out with that. It's so charming. <laughs> you This time around, Professor Layton, he's not in the game, but you, you play as Catriel, the professor's daughter, who leads her own agency now. Uh, she opened up shop on this, in the streets of London. And it is so distinctly British. <laughs> you visit several landmarks of London, like you... You see the Thames, you see the uh, the Big Ben, obviously. The first case you investigate even is a missing clock hand of the Big Ben. Oh, fun. And it's just, it's just really cool. It's a very gorgeous video game. It has this hand-drawn anime style. It's super funny. I encountered a character who worked in a cinema um, in order to, you know, operate the projector. His name was Seymour Frames. So yeah. that's the kind of... <laughs> And he called his he called the projectors Rosalind and Albertina, and speaks with profound affection of these machines. It's really <laughs> heartwarming, very charming, and I must say, 
I always struggled with the puzzles in Professor Layton because this is basically like, if you've never played a Professor Layton game, this is like a point-and-click adventure a little bit. Like you move around mm -hmm. environments that are just, you know, still pictures and you click on certain objects and you click on characters and interact with them. There's a lot of talking going on. You do not pick up things and, you know, puzzle around, but instead you're always confronted with self-contained puzzles that happen in one screen where you get a puzzle it is worth a certain amount of what they call pika rats. And uh, this is, if you manage to solve the puzzle without hints, then you get the full amount of pika rats. Or if you mm. ma manage to solve it without failing. So it's really a game with very a lot. I'm talking a lot. I'm not talking over 100 of these very small self-contained puzzles. And I really like them. I find them very enjoyable. They are not as difficult as in previous uh, Professor Layton games. If you want an example for a puzzle... That, yeah. would, that you would encounter in the game. So here's a puzzle that can easily be solved while, without having to look at anything specifically. And you, dear listeners out there, you can puzzle along. So here we go. A clock is showing 3.30 p.m. Both clock hands should be at 12. What is the minimum number of times you need to touch the clock in order to get them to show the correct time. So I repeat, the clock is showing 3.30 p.m. Both clock hands should be at 12. What is the minimum number of times you need to touch the clock in order to get them to show the correct time? Well, I, I feel the, uh, the obvious answer, which is why I don't think it's right, would be twice, once on each hand. But I'm trying to... I'm trying to visualize 3.30 p.m. It's not a trick question like this is a secret digital clock, right? <laughs> it is kind of a trick question. Because oh, it the is. Thing is <laughs> these puzzles are, sometimes these puzzles are very straightforward and you just need to do something in the right order. Other times, yeah. those are things that make you, that throw you off track, go in a completely different mm. direction than what you, where you're actually supposed to go. I've actually sat down a few days ago and I solved like an elaborate math equation uh, with my with my Apple Pencil on the on the iPad, only to realize <laughs> afterwards that none of it was necessary because it was just a joke, basically. And in this case, it's it's a little bit similar because you said twice, yeah? I actually, yeah. my first guess was you need to touch it once because if you turn the big hand around for one hour, then the small the, hand turns along, yeah. comes along. Um, but the correct answer is obviously zero. You don't have to touch the clock hands at all. Oh, you just wait until clock 12? Automatically, yes. You just, <laughs> you just wait to midnight. That's uh, how simple it is. That's, right. Those are the kind of problems and puzzles that you would encounter in the Professor Layton games and also in this particular one, Layton's Mystery Journey, Catriel and the Millionaire's Conspiracy. So uh, quite fun. Sometimes yeah. they're nice. Sometimes they're pretty unclear and weird. And then I just, you know, there's an integrated hint system. You can collect hint coins by clicking at certain things. And then you can invest them. I always have enough uh, hint coins to basically get almost get to the answer in case that I that I'm completely stuck. There's also some nice additional stuff. For example, you can change cats. That's the cat she, Catriel, right? That's the protagonist. Mm. You can change her wardrobe. Uh, you can decorate the detective office. And there are several mini games where you have to serve characters their ideal meal and you unlock more meals as you go along, as you progress through the game. You need to, there's a mini game where you need to stock up a shop and place items in the correct order so that everything gets sold and a small labyrinth puzzle. 
all kinds of small things that are just uh, like very brief puzzle enjoyment. It's conceptualized for the DS, for the 3DS originally. And that means the good thing, I'm actually impressed by how amazing this works on the iPad. Because mm. on the iPad, you hold it vertically. And you have on the on the upper half of the screen, that's where most of the action happens. That's where the dialogue happens. That's where the characters are. On the lower half of the screen, you basically swipe around with your finger and you have like a little bit of a menu going on there. It works really well. And my favorite thing about it is that there's a memo feature integrated. You know, in a puzzle mm. game where you click on memo and you can draw things or write things down. And it works with this glorious, I'm holding it in the camera right now, but you dear listeners out there can't see it, but this glorious Apple Pencil. So this is a really good feeling when you can just, you know, write things down very precisely and sketch quick notes or illustrate something if you need help with a puzzle. Really cool. I'm quite impressed. It's not like uh, a game that where I say, wow, everyone should have played this. But if you have an iPad or if you even have Apple Arcade, then this is I think this is a really easy thing to recommend. Layton's Mystery Journey, Catriel, and the Millionaire's Conspiracy. Well, it sounds fun, and it also sounds like um, you mentioned that the the puzzles are so self-contained. Sounds like a, a nice thing to do if you have a few minutes, you just want to unwind or something like that, where you don't have to get too invested. Exactly. I think they made the wise choice, uh, that was the case on the 3DS version as well, as far as I'm aware, of not having one long game that you progress through, because honestly, this is pretty long. I've been at it now for, I think, 18 hours, and uh, it's... Oh, wow. It, yeah, I think you can easily spend like a good 20 hours with this game, depending depending on whether you want to do the, all the optional stuff or not. It is relatively long, but in comparison to the previous Professor Layton games, this one is very clearly separate, separated in distinct investigations. And mm. you always, you unlock the first three, one after another, and then you unlock a couple of them and you can choose which one you want to go into you can pause at any time. You can leave an investigation and get going to another one. So it gives you a lot of flexibility to play on the go or like in a very casual manner if you like to. Well, that's Leighton's Mystery Journey, Catriel and the Millionaire's Conspiracy. And those were our side quests for this week, dear listeners. Thank you so very much for listening to this show. Of course, if you want to grab your chance to get that PlayStation 5, then feel free to sign up as a Studying Pixels Plus member. You can go over to studyingpixels.com, explore our website a little bit. And if you're happy with what you see, then there's a little plus button up at the top that you can then check out. Of course, it would be very helpful if you could leave some Apple Podcasts reviews for us or just give us a little bit of few stars that you could rate us at in order to boost us up in the Apple Podcasts algorithm. Of course, you can submit your thoughts and questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com. And then we're looking forward to hear from you again next week. <laughs> <laughs>